Okay, so play along with me here this morning, people. Knock, knock. Interrupting cow. Moo! Knock, knock. Interrupting chicken. Can't believe I'm about to do this one. Knock, knock. Interrupting Buckeye. OH! 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 Healing of the Lord just fall on this house today, Lord. Okay, I got a real one for you here. Knock, knock. Interrupting God. Father, we invite you to come and interrupt us. Just cut right in. Just cut right in line. Cut right in front of us. Get right up into our faces, right up into our hearts. Get right up where we can't miss you, Lord. We invite you to come. Interrupt our lives with whatever it is that you want to say to us right now, right where we are, whatever we're doing. Come take control, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. So prepare to gasp, but I've been reading the Bible. I know, it's trouble all the time, but uh, the clear I've decided that it is the clear plan of God to equip every single one of you, equip and empower you to serve as part of his fighting force in the kingdom of God. I believe that that's true of every single one of you, that God wants to equip you, to arm you with his weaponry so that you can fight in his kingdom force here on the earth because we're at war have you noticed we are at war we are at war with our adversary the devil who wants to steal kill and destroy we are at war good news I skipped to the end of the book and we win okay I mean That's the good news. Spoiler alert, we win. But in the meantime, here we are in the here and now, waiting for the victory of God to come. And we are his agents of power. We are his agents of war. Now, in order to be a part of that kingdom force, it requires an incredible transformation to occur inside of us. An an incredible transformation where God comes and through a process, He transforms each one of us into something that we're not. That by His Word and by His power in our lives, He makes us different than from the way we came. That's called transformation. And we have to experience this transformation in order to be a part of the fighting force. I don't think that there's any better example 
in the Bible of somebody who went through this transformation process than Peter. I love Peter, don't you? I love him for so many reasons. I mean, because of the powerful things he did and because of the other things that he did that bring me great comfort. But he's, an exa- he's a model of transformation. We find him as a fisherman in Matthew chapter 4. And the transformation of the Spirit of God in him causes him in the book of Acts to be a powerful agent of the Word of God and the healing power of God. That's a big difference. And that's the transformation that I'm talking about. And so, today, I'm bringing the first of eight messages that Rob and I will bring to you in a series that we're calling Armed and Dangerous, and it's a character study in the life of Peter. And that means that each week, we're going to look at some aspect of the life of Peter, see something that his life through the Scriptures models for us, shows us, is part of the transformation process, so that then the Spirit of God can speak to you, each one of us, and invite us into that process. Are you in? Because he wants to make us armed and dangerous. Armed with his power and dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. When we uh, first encounter Peter in the Bible, he is armed with nothing, and he is dangerous to no one except perhaps the fish. When we find Peter, he's common, he's ordinary, and he's like countless men who lived before him. He was about to live out his life, I'm sure the best that he could, but within a generation or two of his passing, he would be forever forgotten. As how many countless numbers of fishermen lived and died and have been forgotten, but then something happened. What happened was Jesus Christ happened to him. Jesus Christ interrupted Peter's life. Jesus Christ brought about a divine interruption that changed everything so that now the name of Peter is is still known around the world centuries later. So we're going to look at his life and and see if we can follow through this this transformation process. And each time we see Peter, each week, he's going to present to us the the next part of the change. It's sequential, so that it's important that you follow through this sequence of transformation that Rob and I have identified for us. Today we're going to look... uh, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. And we're going to begin by looking at how God used his powers of interruption to uh, get hold of Peter, seize Peter, and begin this powerful process of transformation. Here's how it goes. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. That has to be one of the better known statements in the world, right? 
Jesus said, Come and I will make you fishers of men. And at once, it says, they left their nets and they followed him. Now let me give you some context for this passage. So what was happening here, we visited this some before, um, is that Jesus was understood to be a rabbi. He was, a, he was understood to be a rabbi like other rabbis who would walk around and they would have collected for themselves a certain band of followers that would, would have been their school and they would have been teaching them. And I, I think you remember me teaching you that, that in, in Israel in the day that young Jewish boys and teenagers, they memorized vast quantities of what is now our Bible. There wasn't a printed Bible, as you know, uh, in, in the same way that we have them. And so they, they actually memorized huge, huge portions of the Scripture, including the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. They, would, they actually committed to memory. And what I think is really amazing is that they memorized it in Hebrew. That's probably a joke that's going to make more sense to you on the way home, right? They <laughs> but they memorized these vast quantities of Scripture, and so what would happen is that as these boys began to come of age, these rabbis would walk around Palestine, and, and they would look for the, the, the kids who really had it, and they would select for themselves the best students. They would select for themselves the ones who clearly showed the mastery of the memorization of Scripture because those were the ones that they wanted to teach how to be rabbis, right? And so it made sense. Well, so Jesus comes along and, you know, he was understood to be a rabbi. What else could he be? Nobody knew who he really was. And so he was starting to collect for himself his own, his own band of followers, only he didn't do what the other rabbis did, did he? He didn't go for the, those guys who, uh, who, who, knew, who knew what was going on, who memorized vast quantities of Scripture. He went for the ones who were overlooked by them. And when they were overlooked by a rabbi, they were then delivered into apprenticeships, like for whatever their fathers typically did, whether it was, you know, fishing or farming or smithing or, or uh, tanning, these kind of things. And so Jesus skipped over the ones that the rabbis normally taught, and he went for the other guys, right? He went, he just, so this is blowing everybody's mind because the rabbis were going around looking for the cream of the crop, right? And Jesus was looking for the cream of the crap, right? And he just went around and he said, you. And so he comes, he comes, that's what's happening when he stops at, if you read on, four fishermen, clearly passed over, and he says, you, follow me. Now, to really get this in context, you have to, Maybe look over to John chapter 1, because this isn't Peter's first encounter with Jesus. If you look over at John chapter 1, you'll see what happened there, in, beginning in verse 35. It says, the next day John, and that, that would have been John the Baptist, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. So John the Baptist 
had some of these guys, right? And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And that's a prophetic fulfillment. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John was pointing attention to Jesus. When the two disciples of John the Baptist heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean they became a part of his school. It just meant they physically followed him. And it says, turning around, Jesus saw them and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, see, there's the rabbi, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So in other words, where where are you going to be for a while? Because we just kind of want to be there. We just kind of want to hear anything that might come out of your mouth. And he said, come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. So they spent a day with Jesus. Cannot imagine. It was about the tenth hour. Now Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. So Peter's brother... Andrew was one of the two guys who went and had that day with Jesus before being called. And it said, um, and, and, and Andrew did, uh, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. In other words, this isn't a, this isn't a regular rabbi. This could be the one. Come, come and see. And then, uh, and he brought him to Jesus, meaning Simon. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So he said, I see you, man. I see you. I know what you're called out there. In here, you're Peter. He had no idea that later he would say, You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is his first encounter with the Lord. Now that happened before... Now I'll go back to Matthew 4. That would have happened before we read this. Again, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw these two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And I think to properly understand the impact of that sentence, you should, you should say, for they were just fishermen. They were the ones who had been passed over. And Jesus said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, they'd already had the encounter, but they hadn't been chosen. Now Jesus said, Come, follow me. Look at verse 20. At once, they left their nets, and they followed him. This is amazing. If you look at verse 20, it's the divine interruption, isn't it? It's the divine interruption. They were just out there doing what they were trained to do, taking care of business, getting through life, right? And an interruption came. Boom. And he said, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Seems like God's primary strategy for recruitment is interruption. Have you anybody been reading the Bible thing? So, so Abraham was an idol worshiper in the land of the Chaldeans, right? And God said, "Come, 
I'm gonna, out of you, I'm going to make for myself a people. And his life was interrupted. He said, I want you to travel far. His life was interrupted. Moses was keeping his father-in-law's sheep. And a bush caught on fire. Interruption. Boom. Samuel was a boy in the house of Eli. And God said, boom. Esther was just being Esther, right? And God raised, and interrupted her life and said, I'm going to use you to save my people from genocide. Interruption. David, he was just out tending his father's sheep, right? And God said, your big brothers are off at war. Take this food to them. And he gets there, and who does he see? He sees Goliath. And he goes, what are you guys doing standing back here? Well, we're all afraid of him. Well, I'll take him. Let me add him. It's those little scrappy ones you've got to watch out for. Don't ever be fooled. <laughs> Don't ever be fooled. <laughs> His life was interrupted. His life was forever interrupted. Jeremiah was just a boy, and he started arguing back with God. And God said, do not say I am only a youth. He said, because before you were born, I knew you, and I appointed you to be a prophet of the nations. His life was interrupted. Poor Joseph, right? He's just being carpenter Joseph. And what about Mary? This adolescent. Joseph, I have some news. That's an interruption. What about Saul on the road to Damascus just carrying out what he considered to be the will of God to go and capture these Christians and have them killed, right? And God comes and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he turned him. 180 degrees. It seems like God's major strategy for recruitment is interruption. is just getting people as they're just walking through life and go, boom. Stop. Follow me. Everything seems to change from there. The process, the process of transformation begins with the right response to God's interruption. Now, some of you are dialing into this transformation idea, and you're already saying, I'm in. You know, I'll walk through this with you. I'll cooperate with the sequence of steps that the Scripture reveals to us for this transformation. To I want to be armed and dangerous. You're kind of, these things are going through some of your minds. And I just want to say that it starts right here, and it doesn't proceed until this happens with the right response to God's Interruption. You are faced when God interrupts you with this critical question. Will I give Jesus Christ complete command of my life? That's the big question. Will I give Jesus Christ complete control of my life? That's the question that's always asked us when this interruption comes. Will I do that? Will I give Jesus Christ complete control of my life? You see, you have a center of control inside of you, right? A control center. Everybody does. It's a little different for each one of us. I like what Julian Rotter did in 1954, which was like way before I was born. But... (laughs) And um, anyway, so... 
In his work as a psychologist, clinical psychologist, he said that he just noticed this about people, is that people live somewhere kind of on this continuum. They either have an internal locus of control. Locus means point. Let's call it point of control. Or they have an external locus or point of control. People with an internal locus of control, they're people who believe and live as though what they do matters. That they, they make decisions, that their life is a result of their own decisions, and that these are people who happen to the world around them, you know? People with a strong external sense or locus of control are, are people who believe, you know, m- much of it is outside of their control. That they're actually the recipient of an outside force of control. Something that their life, you know, will, it, it, it often is, is just kind of like, well, I don't know, I would have done better if this, this, and this hadn't happened. I would have been able to do that job if the guy next to me hadn't. Well, this person says, well, I did that job because I got rid of the guy next to me, right? So you see the difference? And not one is not necessarily better than the other. But what I'm saying is, I think if you think about yourself, you can kind of put yourself somewhere uh, along this spectrum of locus of control, right? Well, here's the big deal. Wherever you are on that, when Jesus Christ comes and says, come, follow me, doesn't matter where you are, you give him control. The locus of control becomes completely external to yourself. So no longer can this person say, well, yeah, I see what you're saying there, Lord, but I'm going to do it this way. Neither can this person say, you know, I do that, Lord, if not for all these other things that are happening to me, because Jesus Christ is Lord, and what he says is what is. If you want to participate in this transformation, you have to answer that question well. You have to say, yes, Lord, you can have, I want you to have complete control of my life. It's really the only way that the transformation can occur, if you think about it. I mean, if we're talking about following the life of Peter, who was entrusted with the Word of God, so when he spoke it, 3,000 were saved in a single day with the power of God that he went here and there healing the sick. If we're we're saying, yeah, I want to sign up for some version of that in my world, then we have to understand that's never even going to begin until we release control of it to God. Because if we had that kind of power and maintained control, we'd mess it up. So we have to be in that kind of surrendered relationship with God where He is Lord and where what He says goes. Even when I don't agree or even understand what He's saying here, I know it's true because it's you. It's that kind of surrendered uh, heart to the Lord that begins the transformation process. It makes sense. Why would we be given that kind of power? Unless we were completely surrendered to the command of the Lord. Right? I want you to think about it this way. I love this story that's been assigned to a lot of different coaches. I've heard the story told about several different college coaches along the way. But the story goes that the coach, let's say Woody, is being, is being criticized for needing to call in all the plays 
that, you know, the criticism comes that, you know, you've got a skilled quarterback out there who understands what's going on. Why don't you just let him call the plays? And the story goes, well, if you had a 19-year-old running up and down the field with your paycheck, would you let him pick the plays? That quarterback has to understand that they are surrendered, right? They are surrendered to the command authority of the coach. How many of you have been in the military? You went through boot camp? That was probably fun, huh? Understand these drill sergeants are real nice, aren't they? <laughs> he said he thought he died and went to hell and didn't know it, okay? <laughs> Welcome back. Thank you for serving. These drill sergeants, you know, they're in your grill, right? They're in your face. And when you, when, when you get there, you do not decide anything. You don't decide when you eat, when you sleep, or what you will do while you're awake. You do not decide at how you will wake up, when you will wake up. You do not decide how long you will stand out in the rain. You do not decide how many times you will assemble and clean and disassemble, clean and reassemble your weapon. That doesn't matter, and they don't care what you think, Right? They make you do it. And if they say, oh, today we're going we're gonna to move this giant pile of, of sandbags up the hill, and you do that and say, well done, now get them back down there where they belong, you don't get to say, that was stupid, do you? <laughs> because the whole regiment of boot camp is meant to strip you of your ability to control anything. They don't get you together at night and go, well, soldiers, just wonder how you think today went. Anybody got any problems you want to talk about? What do you think we should do tomorrow? You know, here it's going to rain. Maybe we should do some inside stuff. What do you think? They don't care what you think. Why don't they? Why? Why do they do this? They do this because. You are about to be a part of the most powerful military force on planet Earth, and you can't make decisions that are outside of your pay grade. Right? Yes, drill sergeant. <laughs> you got to give up command if you're going to get the power. You know, probably the most common airplane that you see flying around other than commercial airliners is called a Cessna 172. They made four, they've made 43,000 of them so far. It's the most common plane that you see. It's commonly used to teach students how to fly planes because it's student-friendly it's, uh, for a lot of reasons. It's the one that I learned how to fly in. And uh, one of the things that they teach you to do, and one of the things that you have to demonstrate to the, to the examiner before they give you your ticket, is you've got you to gotta demonstrate how to recover from a stall. Okay? Now, a stall is when you're in the air and your plane stops flying. Okay? It's a good thing to know what to do then, right? <laughs> it doesn't really happen that often, but you can make it happen, and they insist that you do. And so what happens is you're sitting there with your instructor and you've got the throttle pushed all the way in full power and you put it on an unbelievable angle of attack, a lot, just more than a Cessna 172 is ever designed to climb. And you just keep climbing, 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 climbing. 
And you know, you're up to about 5,000 feet, and what happens is that the plane stops flying because you're at this angle and you're going slow so the air isn't flowing over the wings to give you lift, okay? And so what happens is when you just get to that point, this alarm starts to go off in the cabin, like this, and then the plane begins to shake. That's when you know you're about to stall. Now, you have to do that many times for your instructor, and you have to do it successfully once for the examiner. Now, all you do is when that happens is you just wait, 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 wait. And as soon as the plane starts to fall, you just drop the nose over and neutralize the ailerons and the rudders, and you'll start flying again in a Cessna 172. It's not that bad, unless... Unless, as you're doing this, conditions are such that one wing stalls more than the other. Which means that not only does the plane drop, but that side drops. And you go into what is called a spin. Spins are not good. Okay? Spins are not good. Uh, Spins are substantially more difficult to get out of because you're in panic mode, right? Because it looks like that, right? Your plane is spinning and the earth is approaching. And you have to stop this process before you get there. It's not terribly difficult to do. It's just a lot to remember when it's spinning. I think it's really interesting that in order to get your private's license, you have to demonstrate that you can recover from a stall, but you don't have to demonstrate that you can recover from a spin. You only have to do the spins if you get your commercial. And so what the FAA is saying is that it's okay if you kill your family and friends. It's just not okay if you kill paying customers, right? I, of course, wanted to learn how to recover from spins as well. And so what happens when it starts to spin is you pull the throttle back and you pull the nose over and you neutralize the ailerons, which means, and then you just jam on the side of the rudder that isn't spinning. If you're spinning left, you jam right, right? And then after three or four times around and they're getting a lot closer, a lot faster, you're flying again. That's really nervous. Let me tell you what's more nervous. The Cessna 172 is so popular in part because it is designed to start flying if you just let go. Yep. Yep, my instructor said, all right, in a spin, you're just going to let go, and this plane will start flying. This, this plane will right itself, then you can grab controls. I want to ask you something. Can you even imagine how hard it is to believe that? How hard it is to actually let go of all of the controls while you are spinning toward the earth? Some of you in a spin, and you're trying to correct it. Some of your lives are in a spin. You're trying to correct it. You're leaning hard, aren't you? Jesus says, come follow me. Let go. Let go. Jesus is saying, he's saying, if you want the transformation to occur, you've got to let go of the controls. You've got to. This is difficult in our culture because we value control. 
We applaud control. We think the best people are the ones with the most control. And Jesus comes along. There was a rich guy that came and said, I'll follow you. Jesus said, that'd be great. Why don't you go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow? Why don't you let go? And then you'll be ready. You may know he couldn't do it. You want to be part of this transformation? You got, you got to answer this question. Are you ready to turn over the keys of your life? Say, you drive, Lord. I'm not talking about Jesus, take the wheel. I'm talking. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not talking about that syrup, that candy. I'm talking about, are you ready to say, I take command of my future, take command of my family, take command of my relationships, take command of my possessions. Take command. If it is your desire to be truly transformed by God, then it starts right here. This is the first part of the sequence. It's just to let go. I'd like for you just to think about some of the control issues of your life. What are the things that would be most difficult to release control of? Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your money, you know what it is. What would be something that would be very difficult to release control? Well, Jesus is standing over us, each one of us, and saying, Come, follow me, and I'll make you into something that you're not. I'll make you into something that you can't be without me, but it begins by letting go. Maybe you're a person here today and you're, you're sensing that inside of you and you're saying, I want to I I give control to God. I want to I do that. I want to just let go. I want to begin this transformation process. If you're a person who's sensing that as a reality of what's happening inside of you like to be a part of a prayer come on up I just want to pray for you I should also tell you I got this word from the Lord uh, it means something to somebody who here is ready to get their sword back come Holy Spirit just come Lord So obviously the prayer that is on your guy's heart for coming forward is not, doesn't have anything to do with me. It has to do with God. You don't need me to stand between you and God. I'm just trying to set a table for you to eat from. So now's your time to pray from your heart. Say, God, I release that. I let go. I just release control of my life to you, God. So... We're just going to let you guys pray that prayer and just respond to the Holy Spirit as He stirs inside of you, okay? While that's happening, I'd like to get some of our prayer ministry people to come on up and stand up over on, maybe, maybe on this side would be good. And if you'd let, you're here and you'd like to receive prayer for something, something else, maybe unrelated to this, just like you get prayer for something, these guys will be ready to pray for you, okay? You can just come on up at any time. Church, shall we stand together? Holy Spirit, come. Come for these. Oh, just feel that stirring inside. 
just release it. It's difficult when you're when you're in a spin. I get that. Let me ask you this: Who can fly your life better than you have? Just let him have it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. relinquish control of our lives to you and again as a fellowship we ask you to be absolutely in command of this house Lord. we ask you to be the one who drives us who calls us who empowers us who corrects us who encourages us and um, we just pray father for the continuing move of your holy spirit in these lives the people here who are just saying take control or just take it away pray that you'll hear that, Lord, and you'll respond to them, as I know you will, in specific direction for their lives. Thank you for this fellowship. I thank you for each person, whatever they have going on in their lives. Father, I just pray, now the power of the Holy Spirit to live in each one of them, Father, so we can live lives that bring you maximum glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.